Uh, welcome to the November 24 edition of the Odelay Show. November 24, 2015. The guest today is astronomy enthusiast Bob Gent of the International Dark Sky Association. Among other organizations, he is affiliated with IDA Works to protect the night skies for present and future generations. The IDA's 26th annual general meeting in Phoenix was weekend before last, 14, 15 November, uh, up in Phoenix. The, the theme was One Coin, Two Sides, Impacts of Light Pollution to Fish and Wildlife, Re- wildlife Resources, and the Mitigating Role of Emerging Lighting Technologies. Um, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Robert L. Gent is past president of the IDA board member and past president of the Huachuca Astronomy Club of Southeastern Arizona and past president of the Astronomical League, which is a nonprofit federation of 300 astronomical societies. Welcome to the program, Bob. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, good to be here, and I'm looking forward to this. It's, it's good to have you. This is interesting content. That's not to be confused with the Starfleet Federation, although it could be uh, one never knows what one's organization's legacies might lead into. Uh, intergalactic, peaceable intergalactic hegemony, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> according to IDA, in an average year, it, we're going to be talking about light pollution today. According to the IDA, in an average year in the United States, outdoor lighting uses about 120 terawatt hours of energy, mostly to illuminate streets and parking lots. And that's enough energy to meet for example, New York City's total electricity needs for two years. Uh, the IDA estimates that at least 30% of all outdoor lighting in the United States is wasted, mostly through lights that are not shielded, adds up to a, an estimated cost approximately $3.3 billion American dollars and the release of 21 million tons of carbon dioxide per year. Um, uh, viewed in context of other uh, polluting vectors, that's arguably dismal, but no one wants a pessimistic engineer. So, so Mr. Gent, what is light pollution? What is that mean? Okay, light pollution is basically, in a nutshell, it's bad lighting. It's, it's poorly designed. It's leaving lights on when they should be off because nobody's around. It's shining lights into your bedroom neighbor's window when they don't want it. It's, uh, it's glare that restricts visibility. It's light aimed up in the sky that does nothing more than blind birds and hit the bottom of airplanes and destroy the night sky. It's lighting that disrupts nesting areas along beaches for sea turtles, all species of which are endangered or threatened. It's lighting that disorients birds when they're migrating during migration season. It's lighting that generally is wasted, and we're, we're burning all this energy, as you just mentioned. Uh, by that way, that uh, 21 million tons is probably a very conservative estimate, and that's only for USA. If you factor in the rest of the world, we're talking a lot of carbon pumped into the atmosphere that doesn't need to be there because we're wasting energy blinding people with glare. So um, those are some of the impacts. And you know, we're looking also at, at some of the melatonin suppression. This is the day-night cycle uh, issue. Uh, for, for eons, life on Earth had a day and a night, and now we're trying to turn the night into day. Is that healthy? It's probably not, and we're seeing a lot of adverse reactions on that. So um, basically, yeah, uh, light pollution is poorly designed lighting that uh, wastes a lot of energy and disrupts the night uh, nighttime environment, uh, and it's 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 really a, a challenge for everyone. And uh, that's it in a nutshell. But fortunately, there there are some solutions to this. And I'll ask you about some solutions later, and I'll also give the listener some resources to uh, locations so they can actually get the, a, a more in-depth, fine print description of 
and examples of what the light pollution are. There are some some web applications that are extremely useful in, in illuminating yeah. the issue. Um, and I'll give those in a bit. I've got here in my liner notes, artificial light at night disturbs circadian rhythms and melatonin production, negatively affects human health, increases risks for obesity, depression, sleep disorders, diabetes, breast cancer, and more. In addition to harming human health, a light pollution also increases energy consumption, disrupts the ecosystem and wildlife, and affects crime and safety. I think also it's important to say this. Um, it's the sort of thing that one wouldn't immediately think of when discussing or considering the topic of environmental pollution. But um, when you really think about it, uh, it's the philosophy of conservation uh, that, makes a big difference whether you're talking about light pollution or anything else you know when we're talking about finite resources um where historically the philosophy was these resources for example such as hydrocarbons are not finite but they were treated as such um and i believe it was uh, mr professor fuller who uh, uh authored a book um called this spaceship earth uh, and it was referenced on the IDA website or the Astronomical, Astronomical League website or one of the websites that I was uh, perusing in preparation for this interview. Um, and that's the sort of perspective that we what we really need to have in what in 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 the uh, is the, the consensus is that we need to have that perspective uh, because, you know, our terrestrial mount the, upon which we all are astride is sensitive um, and a philosophy of a philosophy of conservation is important even for things that our average listener may not be thinking about, like light pollution. Wow, that's not making me sick. I can't smell it. It's not pollution. Well, not so the case. And that's why I think this issue is so important. Um, also, astronomers. It's a particularly I mean, it's relevant to everyone. But but astronomers need it. And we need astronomers. Um, maybe we can uh talk about that uh, i hate to hedge it over into only it's important for astronomers i don't want that uh misunderstanding to come across um but maybe just briefly bob what gives with astronomers i understand obviously it's going to be a pet issue of astronomers how does it affect astronomy it affects astronomy in, in many ways, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. There, we're looking at all these other issues, wildlife, human health, glare, safety, all those other issues. But astronomy is, is a very important issue, particularly with respect to light pollution. When you stand under a star-filled sky and you look up and you see thousands of stars and you wonder and you begin to ponder how far are they away, what are they made of, what's the nature of our universe. And astronomers begin to study deeper and deeper and look farther into space, and they see not only is our galaxy full of billions of stars, but there are hundreds of billions, perhaps trillions of other galaxies out there. Well, we can do that, and we can look up, and we can study the sky, and we can use big telescopes, but not if we're blinded by the light. For, for eons, human, humans have looked up at the night sky and pondered the infinite, you know, the unbounded, and seen our little pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan used to call it, mm. here on Earth. And it, it gives us a feeling of the majesty of the universe. And it inspires art and music and science and so many things. And if we're blinded by light, we lose all that. And I remember one of the past uh, general secretaries of the International Astronomical Union saying, if it keeps going the way it is, we're all going to be blinded in a fog of electromagnetic radiation, and we won't be able to study the sky or astronomy at all. And we need to be able to protect that. So, yes, it's critically important to astronomers, but I think it, it's a step beyond that. It's, 
human imagination, if you grow up and you've never seen a star-filled sky, you're not going to be curious about an infinite universe because you won't be able to see it. And that's a tragedy, and that's a sad point. But um, beyond that, the study of astronomy is severely impacted by bright lights, by electromagnetic radiation, by so many things. And we need to be able to preserve that for future generations so that we can stay in touch with our universe. My my son, um, from a very early age, has a big hunger for astronomical content. Like, And he, at age three or four, got... A, a copy of a boxed set of the Carl Sagan uh, Cosmos uh, documentary series. And I believe it was last year, or the year before last two holiday seasons ago or last Christmas, he got the new uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, edition of the, the Cosmos uh, uh, documentary series. And those uh, men, uh, well, you know, they represent their respective faculty and they obviously have, you know, I see this as they've been put upon as part of the marketing um, effort uh, of, of the sciences. Um, and, I, and I think also maybe a little more broadly speaking and, than just the narrowly tailored field of astronomy, um, cosmological navigation and station keeping are <laughs> real things. And without the light to see by, we cannot do those things. Um, so, um, well said, uh, what is the um, so-called crime fallacy? This is we're we're back down uh, inside of the atmosphere on the ground in cities. You know, our our, uh, our we've always heard. You know, we assume that the street lights are what they are, the traffic lights are what they are. You know, that local law enforcement is what it is. I'm hearing different things uh, in the literature uh, for these these astronomical organizations. What gives with the crime fallacy argument? Okay, this is probably one of the most difficult issues facing all of us, and it's one of the most challenging, I know, for the International Dark Sky Association, and that is crime and lighting. Basically, most of us, if not you know, the vast majority, are afraid of the dark. We feel safer when there's bright lights around. We feel safer in the daytime rather than a dark than being on a dark, unlit street. So it's that fear of the dark that causes some some issues. Number one, we're trying to turn the night into day because we're afraid of the dark. And I I guess a really good case in point is me. I'm an astronomer. I love the night. I'm no longer afraid of the night. I appreciate the beauty of night skies, and I love to look at the magnificent Milky Way and and so many other things in the sky from dark sights. But when I was a little boy, I was afraid of the dark. Uh, I would have my mother leave lights on in the bedroom so that I could fall asleep with my teddy bear, and then later on she'd come by and turn the lights off because I was just afraid of the dark. Now, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't fall asleep unless there was a light on. And then, of course, my mom would come by and turn the light out. Thank goodness that no longer is the case. I love the darkness and quiet and coolness to sleep, and it's what we all need. And and so we jump forward and we think, okay, why are we making everything so bright at night? And I'm going to give you a few examples here. When I lived in Washington, D.C., there was a mandate by one of the states, and I can't remember which one, that every ATM machine, these are these bank machines, needs a very set of very bright, glary lights around it on all night long. And that's for public safety and to deter crime. So, we took a look at some of these particular bank ATMs, and yes, they were very bright and glary. But if you look into the distance, just a few yards away, there were bushes and trees and shadows and edges of fences and buildings that were quite dark. So the question is, 
who is going to be safer when you go up to that ATM at 2 in the morning and you're blinded by the glare up there and you're pulling out a lot of cash? Are you going to benefit from that lighting or is it going to be the criminal hiding over in the bushes who's watching that ATM? Well, I, I would declare that it is not anyone at the ATM that's going to be safe in that condition. It's going to be the criminal who's hiding in the dark. So did that bright light around that ATM actually make it safer or did it give a false perception of safety and lower crime? So, so that's one case. Um, another case I'd like to mention is when I went on a, a, a civilian ride-along with a police patrol on a Friday night. This was in a relative relatively large city in the, in the Midwest. I went in, signed all the paperwork that if I got injured, I promised not to sue the police department and so forth. But I, I rode in the back of a patrol car on a Friday night. And we went out until close to midnight. And we were on some pretty well-illuminated streets and some pretty dark streets. And we drove up to this one particular place where there was a street light. And there were two guys doing something that looked really illegal, like money being exchanged and little packets going back and forth. And the policeman turned back to me and said, see those guys, they're probably dealing drugs right now. And I said, well, why are they doing it under a street light? And they said, well, they need light to see, to count the money and to check the drugs. And I said, well, why don't you go out and arrest them? And they said, because currently our jails are full and we have more serious felons in jail than these guys. And we would have to release somebody to put these in the jail right now. And I said, that is absolutely amazing. Here they are dealing drugs under a streetlight. So this whole perception that streetlight is going to reduce crime is all based on this fear of the dark. Something that is really fundamental to us. We feel safer, and therefore we believe we are safer. But are we really? Could criminals be afraid of the dark like us? Could criminals need light to see to commit crimes? Well, I would say, yes, they need light to commit crime. So... Um, we, all too often, we jump to the conclusion that, that if we put up lights, we're going to reduce crime. And I would say, well, it takes more than that. Don't go to an ATM machine alone in the middle of the night if you want to reduce crime. Try to do it in the daytime with a friend. Or um, don't think that just because there's a light, there's not going to be crime. A lot of crime, in fact, the majority of crime takes place in the daytime. So, um, so anyway, it's a very, very difficult issue to deal with. And as a result of that, there are a lot of studies that are not scientifically done that conclude, in fact, lighting reduces crime. So you can see that all over the place. But I would I say, based on the, my uh, experience, the, it's not the, always true. The, in uh, fact... Criminals need the light, too. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but there is a, a, a philosophical or a, it's the, is it the uh, lamppost effect? And you've heard the old um, joke about how there is a, an, an, a police officer, a Bobby walks up and sees this man looking around underneath a light post for his, whatever it is that he's lost. He says, well... Hello, sir. What what are you looking for? And he says, I I lost my keys. Well, okay. Well, I don't see him here either. And he's well, I, I lost him over there in the bushes. Well, why are you looking over here under the light? Because this is where the light is. Anyway, maybe I didn't tell that joke right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's that that comes up in 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 a list of um, like there's an objective bias. You know, maybe that you know of, of fallacious arguments that come up. And there's also uh, some conversation I've seen, so and and some very interesting and somewhat humorous short films, um, uh, on 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 some of the websites that I'll give later, w that shows it's not necessarily you know, it's a poor arrangement of light that creates shadows, and this is where I thought you might have been going with the drug dealer story, 
into which people can hide. So there, it provides a hiding place or a quarter for someone who's about to ambush the victim at night, where otherwise there wouldn't be if the lights weren't so poorly uh, arranged. And the example it gave, the photo it gave of this example on either the IDA website, I believe it was, um, was on was on um, a college campus, and it had two trees and these very large glaring lights, and then all of this there's just all of this black space kind of off where whoever could hide. So, uh, and also regarding uh, ATM, other than painting a big target on one's chest, an automated teller machine, which as we most of us know dispenses cash. Um, I, I hate to very briefly get off topic but what's happening there is technically what someone is trying to steal is your uh executive incumbency as manifest through the united states currency which <laughs> currency is a tool not an object of value unto itself and every time there's an opportunity for a misunderstanding there i always stop down and point that out um so the lamppost bias or something i believe is what it's called forgive me uh, for not remembering i have a, a factoid here that says Environmental responsibility requires energy efficiency and conservation. Installing quality outdoor lighting could cut energy use by 60 to 70 percent, save billions of dollars, and cut carbon emissions. Um, and I'll talk later um, about how this might fit into uh, the g- greater uh, conservation-minded approach that people might be interested in, in, in subscribing to if they're not already. Um, there are also, uh, different kinds of lights. Um, this is something that I'm not an expert on. I'm going to ask you a question about, um, the next question you can fit, hopefully the answer to that in there when I talk about lighting ordinance. So, um, color and, uh, temperature shielding as well as just evidently glare shielding. Uh, there's an IDA fixture of approval. A fixture seal of approval, kind of like um, uh, the things, uh, uh, um, like a Leeds um, or a, a WaterWise sticker that would go on your uh, washing machine, or a, a, a Leeds Green building code standard. There's also an IDA fixture seal of approval for lighting. Um, so color makes a difference as well, Bob. Can you? How is that so? And it seems to me. That the wrong color is what we're trying to avoid. I would think that nice blue light would be, uh, it's, it's counterintuitive. Should we have a, a, a longer wave or a shorter wave light, uh, which contributes more to the pollution? Um, well, what we have is something called uh, the correlated color temperature of fixtures. And if you go to a Lowe's or a Home Depot and you take a look at a lighting, um, a lamp in a box, you're going to see on it um, wattage, lumens, and CCT, correlated color temperature. And we've been looking at, uh, in the past, IDA was always saying we need to keep the lumens as low as possible and keep them shielded so that you don't have a lot of glare. But over the past few years, more recently, we've been looking at the color of the light. And what we've found is that the short wavelength, high-energy, blue-white light is a problem. It's a problem in, in many factors, and let me go through a few of them. One, uh, astronomers did a study and found that the, the blue, high-temperature light, high-energy, causes a lot more sky glow, so it has a more significant impact on the night sky or the loss of the night sky, if you will. It also has an impact on wildlife. The blue light seems to impact a lot of species more seriously than, say, red light or orange light. So that's another impact. Another one is blue light seems to suppress melatonin, particularly in humans, more quickly than the other other um, frequencies or energy levels. So what we're trying to do is encourage less blue and a more uh, what we call the warmer colors, which is the reddish yellows and so forth. But um, when we take a closer look at all of that, and what we've found is that 
for what we have right now, 3,000 Kelvin, which is a correlated color temperature, should be about a maximum value for um, for uh, lighting. And you can look on the boxes and you'll see the CCT value. And here in Cochise County and Sierra Vista, where I live, over the past couple of years, we debated this, studied it, and went before planning and zoning and city council and board of supervisors. And we have enacted in our area uh, zoning codes to restrict the color temperature to no more than 3,000 Kelvin. And in fact, while this was going on, the International Dark Sky Association Technical Committee, which includes uh, people all around the world, including lighting designers, lighting engineers, came up with a, um, a revision to the fixture seal of approval program that not only includes the requirement for shielding, but also a maximum color temperature of 3,000 Kelvin. So IDA right now is in the process of updating the fixture seal of approval program to include this uh, color restriction based on wildlife impacts, melatonin suppression, um, impact to the night sky, uh, glare issues. And we found also, when I was studying this during the, the um, debates here and discussion with our planning and zoning, that some uh, eyeglass manufacturers are beginning to put blue filters in glasses because there may be evidence for macular degeneration from high-energy blue light from LEDs, which are in computer screens, tablets, you know, uh, your smartphone, and all the, the new LED lighting that's going in everywhere. So, yeah, we need to be very careful with the blue-rich light, and that's why uh, IDA has uh, updated the fixture seal of approval program to include the maximum value of 3,000 Kelvin. They do make good grow lights. Um, <laughs> and as I... <laughs> As I sit here, I'm, I'm, a, my, I'm a vegan. Now my diet has changed. And one says, you know, you hear one is what one eats. And I've, you know, I, I just don't want any metastasis. But uh, if it might make me stronger, I don't want to be radioactive. I will say, um, it, you know, it, it, it's a, it is a vocational uh, situation that has to be managed. All of the, uh, the staring into the shell. The planetarium software that I have. Um, has all has night modes on it. Typically, that just uh, causes everything to go, and it's there to, of uh, you know, mitigate glare. If you are, you know, if you're you if you're doing applied astronomy and, and, and dealing working at night, um, and they invariably, as far as I can tell, every planetarium software on its screen interface has a night mode, and, and then everything goes a nice dark red, and it's very comfortable to the eye. And you can't really, of course, see it very well if you're dealing with that sort of operation during the daytime. Um, and likewise, for example, here at Patterson Observatory at UA South, um, when you go in there at night and the, the, the telescope is in use, um, it's, there is a, a very warm, hushed, you know, lower wavelength red light that illuminates the inside of that building for the same reason. Um, what's the size of that piece of equipment out there, by the way? Uh, the Patterson Observatory yes, has, um, it's a research-grade 20-inch diameter. It's called a Richie Gretchen telescope, and it's an F8.6. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty substantial instrument, and that Patterson Observatory was paid for out of public donations. It was not paid for with tax dollars. The school or the university didn't pay for it. But just local people around Sierra Vista chipped in uh, to make that happen. The scope itself has a replacement value of $175,000, and we're really pleased that uh, our community um, got together back in 2004 and made that happen. It was the grand opening was, I believe, September 2004. But yeah, it's a really nice research grade astronomical telescope located at the University of Arizona Sierra Vista campus. Is it insured? Uh, insured, uh, I believe so because a couple years ago the office manager for the 
University South Foundation was asking me for the value of it. So I went back to the um, the company that actually built the telescope and said, if, if we had to hire you guys to come out here and do this again, what would it cost? And that's when they gave me the quote of 175000 for the telescope. So I'm guessing, yes, it must be insured. That's why, that's why I asked, because you had that quote at the ready. Um, and I thought, well, he must have some sort of risk assessment there on, on his mind if, he's given, if, he, if that's so to hand. Um, the IDA offers, uh, and my youngster loves, that's an, that is an excellent resource out there. The, the IDA offers uh, sample lighting ordinance. Um, I, you know, my experience was pretty uh, of seeing this brought to local government. It was pretty well received because at the time and and now again, I lived and now again live in an area where the relatively pristine, relatively unpolluted in terms of light pollution, night sky is considered to be an asset uh, in this part of the United States. Um, So the uh, the local the mayors, as you mentioned, the the county government officials are more inclined to bend an ear to such things, and it's a relatively rural area anyway. So there's a little more already in place, perhaps awareness of how it's kind of it's peaceful. We'd like to keep it that way. So when I saw members of uh, of, of the localist uh, amateur astronomers organizations and you know uh, people of 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 the like pitching these. Um, Proposals to the city and to the county out here in in uh, Greater Sierra Vista and Cutchies County. Um, it was pretty well received. I imagine it's not always so easy, and it may not have been as big a success story as I recollected having been ten years ago. The last time I dealt with the issue, but uh, I couched the following question with that, so that you can that gives you the strike zone through which to pitch your answers. The IDA offers sample lighting ordinance, for example. How effective are such civic efforts? What about industrial lighting and some success stories? And then in big cities where there's already a great deal of pollution, uh, what about industrial lighting? Um, You know, here, right here by Patterson Observatory at that unit we were just talking about, there is a, a utility substation that's right there, and some of those lights are shrouded and one of the local amateur astronomers told me that they're working on getting some more shrouded, but they've, it's at a snail's pace. I've also heard some conversation about uh, 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 very rapid uh, urbanification going on in the Orient, uh, um, on the Asian continent. Um, so that, you know, that would be arguably theoretically a time where you could get a toehold in such a thing, but maybe the politics of that isn't welcoming i know that sounds like a lot of questions but how effective are those civic efforts and what about industrial um the same thing and not just neighborhoods but an industrial place like a power plant and what about in big cities that are already existing you mentioned big cities in the the southwest or in the in the in the midwest what about chicago for example or new york Okay. Um, wow, that is a lot of questions. Let me just uh, start at the beginning. Um, lighting ordinances. Yes, the International Dark Sky Association developed something called the Model Lighting Ordinance. Uh, it involves uh, lumen densities, glares, uh, lighting zoning areas, and so forth. Um, in a nutshell, uh, what we like to see is that Communities enact ordinances that have some factors to them. One is outdoor lighting should be shielded. That is, aim the light down at the sidewalks, your yard, uh, the road, where it needs to be, so that it's not blinding drivers and pedestrians. So shielding helps a lot. Uh, Another one, don't use more light than what you need. So set some lumen limits, how bright the lights can be, and... And that will help a lot. And then think about curfews. Do these lights need to be on all the time? If you have a business that closes at 9 p.m., why should you have it illuminated at 2 in the morning when nobody's there? So that's another important thing. And more recently, we've added, as I just mentioned, the color temperature. 
try to keep keep the uh, temperature lower, below 3,000 Kelvin. So those are some factors that all ordinances should have. Are we successful? Well, in Arizona, um, you know, this has been the center of, of astronomy for a long time. Our national observatory at, at Kitt Peak was first started back in the 50s, and we built telescopes in the 60s and 70s, and there, there are more than 20 telescopes up on Kitt Peak, and now we have the largest binocular telescope in the world is on Mount Graham now. So there is astronomy all over southern Arizona, and as such, there were astronomers who cared about preserving the night sky, and that's partially why the International Dark Sky Association headquarters was founded in southern Arizona, but now it has grown to a global organization with members in 70 countries, so we're trying to address the problem not just around observatories, but everywhere, and what we've discovered is wildlife impacts human health, all these other issues, public safety with glare reduction, are important to everyone, not just people near observatories and not just people near in the rural areas. So many cases, yes, the ordinances can be done, they're good, and they work, like Sierra Vista in Cochise County. Our strategic plan in Cochise County says one of our objectives is to preserve our night skies, and we're really, really happy about that. But what about places like Chicago or New York City or um, Berlin? Well, there are organizations, believe it or not, working around the world with IDA and IDA members trying to address the lighting challenges in those areas. I know I have a friend in Chicago who's trying to encourage Chicago right now to do the right thing. They are about to replace more than 350,000 streetlights with new LED streetlights. And she's encouraging them to use fully shielded, a low CCT with minimum lumen levels rather than high glare lights. And she's working with a lot of other people in the Chicago area to try to do that. I know uh, other IDA members and the technical committee has been working with Chicago, too, uh, to, to try to encourage them to do the right thing. But um, if there's no ordinance in place, there's not always a motivation for um, communities, businesses, street lighting to do, to do the right thing. Ordinances help. Um, I'd like to go to one city in particular that's a great case in point, and that's Los Angeles. Um, prior to the mid-'80s, oh, there were a lot of very high-glare streetlights around Los Angeles. And towards the late-'80s and early-'90s, uh, the director of street lighting was met the founder of the International Dark Sky Association and was invited to join our board. And he through his own decision, uh, said future street lighting in Los Angeles will only be fully shielded, no more high glare. And it worked. And he, they asked him, why did you do this? Was it to save energy? And he said, no, I care more about pedestrian and traffic safety than the other issues. And in fact, he didn't even know how much those street light electric bills were because the street lighting department didn't pay the power bills for the city. That was in a totally different department. And so at the time, he said, I'm just doing this for improved safety. Lower glare means better safety, better visibility. So that happened more than 20 years ago. And it's just a case that you can take action, and it doesn't have to be by ordinance. It can be by choice. If you're the director of street lighting, you can make that choice. If you are the person who owns a business, you don't have to have an ordinance. You can say, I want low-glare lighting and energy-efficient lighting at my business. It's good for, good for my profits and good for visibility, and it's good for the neighbors. So, but in general, ordinances help because there are some people who might not want to, uh, want to have good quality lighting because they always had high-glare lighting, and they think that's the only way to light. And ordinances make it, they level the playing field. Everybody has to have uh, good lighting. So it can't happen in a city that's already large 
metropolitan area, there can be implemented policy successfully. That's good to know. L.A. did it. Uh, I wonder if there are federal grants. I mean, I was about to say, so property, properly capitalizing it and, you know, as it were, in cooperation with the brain trust, uh, uh, you know, among local or regional governments would seem to be the way to do it. You know, I mean, you know, you got entrepreneurs, um, you know, and this is applied engineering most undoubtedly. So there wouldn't be any dissent from, from you know, the, uh, the, 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 the fields in the know. No one's going to say, oh, no such thing as light pollutant and, and be correct. You know, there's no peer-reviewed research that's going to tear it apart. So with, with, the, with the science and, the, and the, the political will and the kind of the, the need of the thing, it would seem like there might be some federal grants. And if there isn't, it would be pretty cool if, you know, such a policy, such a, such a, a mechanism could be put in place. Or maybe there's a, uh, something there that can be more, that's just broadly speaking. For example, when I went and got quotes for, my, for the solar infrastructure on my home, well, you can't really, the, the only way to get federal money for that is if it's a business. And, well, but, but I, 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 my home is, I work out of my home. In fact, I'm, I work pretty much around the clock when, unless I'm asleep. So I was, um, I didn't get that, that application in in time. Um, I'll try again next year. Um, but hopefully there's, there's some sort of maybe, if there's not any specifically curtailed funding mechanisms at the federal level uh, for such things, maybe there, maybe there are some more general that could be appropriated as necessary. And I haven't canvassed, um, and I'm just only talking, of course, about the United States. But when you look at that NASA map of the lighting, uh, the continental, just around the globe, I mean, it's pretty looking. But heck, so are some of the power plants. Very pretty looking. They look like a video game. You can't see the sky to save your life. When I walk my dog out here at night, there's no, we're on a dirt road. There's no street lights. It's absolutely beautiful. The Milky Way is just spattered up there. It's just wonderful. Um, of course, it's nothing compared with what one might see when, you know, at sea. Um, um, but, um, uh, and, 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 and it also bears stating that I have noticed in my studies over the years into local government, um, those people shouldn't be surprised and they should have already heard of local government officials. It shouldn't, you know, it, for, for someone, an amateur astronomer or someone with an, such an interest to approach them and say, well, what about uh, this, sort of, this sort of pollution mitigation? It shouldn't be the first time they've ever heard it because there is more or less kind of an ad hoc circuit. I mean, you get specialized in one's career after long enough, and then you can pretty easily do a census, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, your city managers know other city managers, and you know pretty much exactly what their job description is doing because you're kind of aware of it. Uh, for our listeners, ultraviolet light is electromagnetic radiation with wavelengths from 400 nanometer to 200 nanometer, shorter than that of visible light, but longer than X-rays. Infrared radiation is electromagnetic radiation with light with longer wavelengths than those of visible light, extending from the nominal red edge of the visible spectrum at 700 nanometers to one millimeter. Um, So visualize that or look at an old Pink Floyd album. Um, There is in Florida um, a sea turtle conservation program um, involving the Florida Environmental Protection Agency Florida Fish and Wildlife, and I, th- I think also in cooperation with some of the higher education um, uh, institutions down there, because the sea turtles are drawn off sides, as it were, by lights on the shore, which they think, I suppose, are the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, if you, I, I, I realize you're in Arizona, not in, in, in Florida, but if you want to talk a little bit about that, I mean, that has mass appeal, and I wonder if there are any other uh, such conservation programs in the work. Um, yes, um, the sea, I attended uh, a couple of sea turtle symposiums uh, several years ago, and one of the things they're worried about is that all species of sea turtles around the globe are threatened or endangered. Now, why would that be? Well, sea turtles need uninhabited beaches in order to nest. 
They don't like buildings. They don't like roads. They don't like bright lights. And if any of those things happen, they lose their habitat and they can't nest. So uh, many species of suit, uh, sea turtles are really severely endangered. And, and as I mentioned, all are threatened. So what happens? Basically, you have a nesting area along a beach and somebody says, okay, we're going to do some development here. Uh, let's put up some bright lights along the beach so people can uh, walk along the beach at night. And let's leave those lights up all night. Well, what happens is the sea turtles will not nest in that area once it's illuminated. If they nest in an area and later you put up lights or turn the lights on them, the hatchlings that come out of the nest can't find their way back to the water. And they, I've actually seen films of them going in circles around the nest under bright lights because they are so disoriented. And they die. So in Florida, there are literally thousands of people who are sea turtle enthusiasts who will go out on the nesting areas and tell people, turn your lights off. The sea turtles are nesting now, and your lights are going to kill them. So, uh, so that's one, one area where wildlife impact is significant, and what they need is lights off along the nesting areas, not just you know shielded lights, but they, they don't want any lights along those nesting areas. Another wildlife-related case is migrating birds. There's an organization up in Toronto, Canada called the Fatal Light Awareness Program, for, uh, founded more than 20 years ago by Michael Masur. Um, basically, what he found is in the Toronto area during bird migration, literally thousands of birds would die every night by crashing into buildings that were brightly illuminated. And he worked with building managers in Toronto to get them to turn off the skyscraper lights at night, particularly when there's nobody working in the building. You would think, isn't that kind of common sense? Why wouldn't they do that all the time? But he does that particularly to reduce bird kills during migration. So these are just two examples, but there are many, many other examples where wildlife is severely impacted by turning the night into day. It's, it's just not good for them. You know, I hate to, to uh, you know, be a fuddy-duddy, but that sort of beach activism... Um, can get you killed um, and down in South America and you know um, I think that speaks to kind of you know, I, I don't want to preach I'll wait until I've let you go before I start pounding the table but it really does show how far reaching um, uh, uh, such policy can be and kind of where the rub is um, when speaking truth to power Unfortunately, in some jurisdictions, extracontinentally and hopefully not locally, um, when, you're, when one is speaking truth to power, one is speaking to uh, basically a st street criminal. So it's un unfortunate that down, for example, on some of the beaches maybe around Rio, the, uh, the incumbent leadership are um, criminals, uh, violent criminals on a beach. <laughs> but anyway, like I said, that's pretty dark, and this is... Uh, way to look at it, but uh, I was just reading an article about that not long ago uh, about a conservation uh, and an ecological activist down there, basically having taken it in their own hands to go do mitigation of some sort or another of uh, uh, protection of uh, wildlife on a beach. Um, yeah. Uh, um, go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to go back to uh, your earlier question on commercial industrial. Um, I wanted to give one case in point from Port Arthur, Texas, uh, maybe 15 years ago. And just for the there was an IDA member a, uh, who was a shift supervisor quickly. at one of the largest refineries in the southern U.S. in Port Arthur called the Primcor Refinery. They were having problems because there were some brownouts during the summer and, uh, along Houston, over into Louisiana, because they... Temperatures got so high, people were running air conditioners, and there just wasn't enough power in the grid to, to 
provide. And their company said to the power provider, hey, we can't live with this brownout. We're going to need power regardless if you have to reroute it. Whatever you have to do, keep our power going. And they said, well, sure, we can do that, but it's going to cost you. And your per kilowatt hour could go up to as much as a dollar per kilowatt hour. And, of course, the management at the, at the refinery said, whoa, that's way too much. We're going to have to cut our power use. Uh, otherwise, this, this will bankrupt us. So uh, the IDA member, who is a shift supervisor, said, you know, we have 20,000 lights burning on this refinery 24 hours a day. Most of them are completely unshielded and high glare. In fact, he said there are cases where people have to bring bright flashlights to use to light up an area because they've been blinded by glare. He said, why don't we try shielding the lights and actually aiming them down reduce the glare, and at the same time, because they're all aimed down, we can reduce the wattages and lumens. Well, they did that, and they did it on 20,000 lights. And what they found out was that this whole project made for better visibility and conserved enough power that they were going to be able to pay for this whole conversion project in two years. It was an amazing change, and it was all by a refinery only doing this because their power bill was going up so high during the brownouts. But one of our members was successful to get this project through the system. So this was an industrial project to shield lights. And I, I like to ask people, hey, if it's good enough for a refinery, isn't it good enough for your home? That was money that was already in their wallet, as it were. Um, that's that's good thinking. Uh, Gulf, United States Gulf Coast, Port Arthur, in that area, all the way up, up, up through Louisiana. That's there's a just you know it's just more or less saturated with um, hydrocarbon processing equipment. Of course, that's where Port Arthur, Texas. Um, yeah, and we used to go down there to the beach. It um, and it's in. It's actually in uh, Ron Paul's uh, congressional district. Uh, we would go down to what we call Surfside Beach, um, drive down there a little farther south than Houston, a little little cleaner. But you're driving through infrastructure all the way, and uh, you know it looks like it looks like um, a scene from the old Sean Connery sci-fi film Outland. I mean, it's like you wouldn't. I mean, it, it's just it's it looks like a, a, a my, it's really interesting looking, but it's it, you can't see the stars. That's to be sure. Uh, lastly. Um, how else can people get involved um, with this sort of thing? I've got example, backyard astronomy, civic involvement, home and property modifications, or business. You know, uh, if you're going to become a member of one of these organizations, join a chapter. Uh, yeah, absolutely. One one of the best things you can do is join the International Dark Sky Association. You can do that at darksky.org, and you'll find when you go to that website, there are just literally dozens upon dozens of papers and practical guides and research that's been done on this to help you get started. But uh, membership in IDA helps. If you're a part of a, a local astronomy club and you're trying to protect your observing area, sure, you can get involved that way. When we were here in Sierra Vista, our club was going to so many city council meetings and planning and zoning meetings, debating this whole uh, ordinance update. Some really good things happened on the side that we didn't even know was was going to happen. For example, one of the neighborhoods here said, you know, we've got too many streetlights in our neighborhood. Why don't we remove some and shield the others? Well, there's a, uh, a neighborhood in Winter Haven now that's pulling out 46 streetlights and shielding all the remaining streetlights, and they're using their homeowner association money to do that. None of us actually went and asked them to do this, but it was just a pleasant surprise because they were following this uh, lighting ordinance update uh, debate in the paper and, and so forth. So, yeah, there's just so many things that you can do to get active. Study the issues, join IDA, uh, talk to your planning and zoning department if you don't have an ordinance. It's not that hard to do, but it takes persistence. You've got to stick with it and, uh, and be ready to answer questions and show what others have done to solve the problems. You might end up you hang around at City Hall long enough, 
and people realize that you're operating in good faith, you may become incumbent for the mayorship. You never know. He mentioned you mentioned Winter Haven. That's a retirement community around down here in this in this town. It's a relatively small town, and it's good to hear that their homeowners association is doing something cool. Um, uh, before I let you go, um, uh, what sort of I have seen so many kinds of planetarium software. I use the first one I ever started using was one called Hallow North Sky, uh, built by a, I believe he's a Canadian. Um, I um, that was early on. It was one of the only open source or freeware ones I could find. In the intervening ten or fifteen years, the last time I checked on my smartphone, there were more than I could count, dozens. Now some to some degree, there's some are specialized, and some are specialized so you can. Just, just monitored basically uh, artificial satellites. Some are specialized because of their really in-depth deep sky object software packages. Um, would you make any recommendations for for a, a, an amateur astronomer starting out for planetarium software? Because in my opinion, before going out and buying a telescope, that's where people ought to start. Yeah, absolutely. Before you buy a telescope, you need to know a little bit about the night sky. And what I tell people is, yes, uh, Go ahead and, and uh, look at Sky and Telescope magazine. Every month they have a star chart that shows you what's up for the night. Same with Astronomy magazine. Uh, think about going to an astronomy club meeting and just talk to people about how they do their astronomy, what kind of scopes they have, and why they like them. Um, if you're looking for free software on, on any Android phone, and I think it's also on iPhones, Android version is called Google Sky Map. And it's free. You just download it, and then you can point it up in the sky, and it'll show you exactly what the major stars and constellations are. But for me, I need something a little bit more advanced than that because I have an observatory in my backyard. I want to be able to track down faint galaxies and clusters. I want to see the details on eclipses and asteroids. So... Um, Years ago, I started using something called Megastar. It's still available. But more recently, there's a new product that I started using called Starry Night Pro. It's going to cost you more than $100. But it has access to the, the detailed astronomical catalogs. It has all the asteroids, most of the major comets, all the faint galaxies in the NGC catalog, the IC catalog. So if you want to go really advanced, something like Starry Night Pro, that runs on a uh, laptop or a desktop. And I have that on my control computer inside my observatory. So there are a lot of different different brands. They all, a lot of them work really well. Megastar, Guide, The Sky. I can just go through a lot of names of uh, uh, different astronomy programs, but the ones I just named, you have to buy them. Um, free stuff, you know, like I say, the Google Sky Map is free, but it doesn't have all the details that these more advanced programs have. And one of the reasons I like um, Starry Night Pro, uh, they update it every time I log on with any new comet discoveries, new asteroid positions, uh, uh, major. Uh, events in the night sky will be uploaded to the database so that I can uh, stay um, stay updated with newly discovered comets, for instance. So the, uh, the anyway, those are just the... some ideas. There's really loads of software out there. Just just a subscription to Sky and Telescope or Astronomy Magazine is is a good start too. Mm-hmm. And some of the open source stuff has gotten far more user friendly these days. Often with those, you end up being I mean, if you're, you know, you end up being part of the technical team. So it's how much time you have to spend on that. Also, people can monitor the International Space Station. Um, they update their progress, and each day, each one of the um, of the officers up there updates what they're working on. I think I, you can. I forgot where I was getting. I used to get it off spaceref.com. dot uh, Other resources include. Um, regarding light pollution and the like, artificial light at night or Allen research literature database, the Cabal light meter intercomparison, the European symposium for the protection of the night sky, the illuminating engineering society of North America, multi-platform color temperature digital apps are available such as F dot Lux, Lux, Twilight, 
etc. Other resources include uh, Cities at Night Project, Globe at Night Project, the Dark Sky Meter application, the Sky Quality Meter app, uh, the International Year of Astronomy light meter, and the NASA Blue Marble Navigator Globe at Night interactive light pollution data map. Um, that's an hour. Uh, and, well, that's 59 minutes and 48 seconds. Mr. Gent, thank you so much for coming on this program this morning. I appreciate your time very much. You're welcome, and thank you for the invitation. So there he went, retired Lieutenant Colonel Gent, um, local astronomer and um, heavily involved with various astronomical uh, organizations and institutions um, throughout his career. Very interesting and helpful guy, and I appreciate him. Um, discussion in today's uh, show um, on pollution begs a couple of questions, just a couple of high points before I shut down and close the tape for today. Um, pollution. We talked about light pollution. Okay? Um, what you're on now is a living terrestrial mount. Okay? Um, so, you know, they say don't poop where you eat. You know, it is said. And if, uh, rightly so. Um and not only is the you know the uh, terra firma you know it's it's alive and as far as it can be killed and it is you in as much as it, it matters of uh, survival or you know quality of life. Um, so think about your um, interaction with it uh, and the the ecology of it and the environment surrounding yourself and impact on others oils and plastics um uh can you know we essentially are all hydrocarbons just at some varying uh position on the clock and so uh you know renewable feedstocks such energy feedstocks such as solar and wind um is important in the greater marketplace um and I'll have to say this about, you know, the American dollar, or which is essentially you, insofar as it is a meter of meter of your interaction in the marketplace, both local and you know, both domestic and global. Okay, um, when I worked in in uh, as support and scriveners, you know, support uh, for a few years in oil and gas, uh, you know, I got a really good perspective on kind of um, uh, something that transcends every field. It's kind of a, a good, good rule of thumb about uh, life. That is to say, there's good and bad cops in, in, um, in energy, just like there can be good and bad journalists or good and bad cooks or, you know, people operating in good faith and people who aren't. Um, so in research and development and, um, uh, in energy um and you know there are some of the most forward thinking holistically integrated uh plans moving forward for you know shoring up waste and preserving the resources that we do have uh remaining and uh, you know add you know onward infinity infinitely towards the future and up to the stars. And then there are some uh, in energy who just continue to um, be a cottage industry of the economy and refuse to implement or even seriously have a conversation about um, renewable energy, which is, of course, the uh, critical path for the survival of life as we know it or life period for us. Um, you know, so, you know, it regarding the, the capitalism, uh, which is the prevailing, according to Hoyle, uh, modicum of, uh, of the marketplace interface these days, um, it matters, uh, you know, how you 
interact as individuals or as organizations, how you interact with the marketplace. Be mindful about what you create or perpetuate a demand for. Um, and I think, you know, your, your engineers, your scientists, your narrowly specialized people such as the, um, uh, the guests today, um, you know, they, the Astronomers Guild is a very orderly thing. There's no question empirically what the problems are today and the only ways to fix it. And it, it is applied science. It is organized operations in good faith. Um, there are other words for those things as well. It is, you know, for those that don't understand technology, it is said to be, you know, that's the definition of what would be defined as magic. It would be technology you didn't understand. Another thing that I talk to my youngster about frequently is that essentially the only magic that's good magic or worthwhile or even worth calling it is, you know, um, uh, is essentially fundamentally, you know, in good faith or, you know, uh, peaceable love uh, based moving forward. The, op the, the alternative to which is war and death and uh, exploitation and... Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, blind ignorance. So, um, and I think the light uh, pollution issue is, a, is an interesting way to look at it. One of the reasons, one of the several reasons is, is because it's, it's of concern to these people who are, you know, these engineers who understand, you know, greater systems, such as that which we are immersed in down here um you know ecologically and biologically on the planet earth and um so there's a way out and we can have it our very own personalized way but we have to pay attention you know and little things that you think might not matter do um so again we i appreciate him and i uh, you know we the listeners appreciate uh, Mr. Gent coming on today's program for us and shining a light for us about um, about uh, uh, light pollution and issues otherwise related to astronomy. That's all for the November 24, 2015 edition of the Odelay Show with uh, C.G. Brazewell. Um, again, thanks to, for our guest today, astronomer Bob Gent of the International Dark Sky Association, Huachuca Astronomy Club of Southeastern Arizona, and the Astronomical League. For more information about these organizations, visit www.hacastronomy.org. It's all one word. Um, for the Wachuca Astronomy Club of Southeastern Arizona, um, also www.astroleague.org for the Astronomical League, and uh, darksky.org for the International Dark Sky Association. Also, today's program is brought to you by Brazewell Communications Publishing and Multimedia. For more information regarding Brazcom products and services, uh, uh, visit uh, fusepowder.com, F-U-S-E-P-O-W-D-E-R.com. The audio archives for the Odelay Show are available at fusepowder.com slash WordPress. Thanks again. Come back to see us.